It's Monday, March 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio, it's belligerent market timer Jason Moser. <laughs> Thanks for being here. That's uh, I'm very, very happy to be right here. Right before you. we start recording, you check the market. And you were audibly displeased that the market was up today because you were hoping to do a little more bargain hunting. Well, maybe I not even really personally for myself. I just feel like we've got this this market that's all over the place. It can't really make up its mind. I feel like um, you know I was thinking about this earlier today. I mean, we are at a point where I think people are still freaking out because of the coronavirus stuff, and I mean, understandably so. But I mean. I feel like you know we need to get to a place where we're okay with understanding this exists and how we're going to live in the world and as people going forward managing in a world where this coronavirus COVID nineteen exists and maybe once we get there that's when the markets start to calm down a little bit and given today's buying that's going on I don't that's not a calm market right that's still not a sensible move I just kind of want to see a little bit more. Rationality. Well, we're going to talk about uh, this a little bit more because we're going to. Uh, we got a great email question about buying opportunities in the market and how to fund them. But we're going to start with two different companies that are in the spotlight for two very different reasons, and we'll start with Twitter because shares of Twitter are up about seven percent this morning because Elliott Management, which is a uh, a fund company that has somewhere to the tune of $35 billion under management. Elliott Management has taken a $1 billion stake in Twitter. They've nominated four people for the board of directors. And they're pretty clear about the fact that they want Jack Dorsey gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, at least you understand fully where they're coming from. And I mean, I, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with what they're demanding. But with that said, I fully understand where they're coming from. I think anytime you have a a CEO that is serving two roles, right? I mean, you know, you have a co or a CEO that's that's working at two different companies. Um, yeah, you have to ask the question of are they stretched thin? And I mean, you you could argue that maybe Jack Dorsey is stretched thin. I don't know. I mean, it, you can argue that if you're a Twitter shareholder. You, if you're a Square shareholder. You're looking at your returns with Jack Dorsey as CEO, and you're like, well, "I'm good. This is great. <laughs> yeah, let's keep this going." I mean, yes, yes, that's that's yeah, that's a good point. Now, I mean, I, I do think though it's also important to note that the stock performance isn't always necessarily indicative of what the business is doing, and and so I mean, let's look at some of the numbers at least to to shed a little bit more light here when. When Dorsey was officially named CEO again back in October of of 2015, it was October 5th, 2015. On October 4th, Twitter share price closed at $26.31. So today, uh, obviously considerably higher, the stock is up essentially 35% since he came back on. That's pretty good. He's taken them from what was a $2.2 billion revenue company and no profits. To now trailing 12-month revenue of three and a half billion dollars and fully profitable, uh, he came in and said one of his primary goals was to bring that stock-based compensation down. One, we were very critical. I mean, everybody was right, rightly so. Absolutely. I mean, that was a 30, 35, 40 percent number at one point, um, way out of line with other peers in the space. He made that a point of, of focus. He's brought it down to that 10 percentage range now, like he said he would do. So uh, it, it it has not been a bad stretch if. If you are a Twitter shareholder, considering where the business was before he came back, I think this is absolutely a better business today than it was then. 
given Twitter's resilience as a platform, it's been very difficult to disrupt. I mean, it's not like Facebook can go in there and just build something that copies it. It's certainly understandable that investors want more, and I think that's probably where most of this is coming from. And as we've talked about before, Twitter is set up for what should be a good year in terms of advertising revenue between the Olympics, assuming the Summer Olympics are still going to happen, the presidential election. This this is one of those stories that I think makes headlines today for the obvious reasons, both in terms of the news coming out of Elliott Management, their demands, and the stock popping. But I think it's also a story that bears watching as the year plays out. Because whatever happens in their next quarter, if if they have a stumble to any significant degree, I think that helps make the case that Elliott Management is making that maybe Dorsey should ride off into the sunset. Yeah, um, I, I do think that I think that Twitter, given the nature of its platform, given the audience that it that it has, I think that they're always set up for success. I feel like there's always an event or something, a catalyst that should serve the business well, that they should be able to capitalize on. Whether it's the World Cup or the Olympics or an election, that stuff is going on all the time, and that is Twitter's core audience. So, I mean, I do feel like as as a Twitter user, it, it the platform's gotten better. It, it, it could be more. I, I, I certainly can see that. I mean, I, I do feel like it's it's they've been spinning their wheels, maybe trying to figure out exactly what direction to go in. They were making big investments in video, and, and video has become more a part of it. I don't know how much that really contributes to the bottom line form at this point. It's a better service today than it was years ago, but I, I do feel like it probably hasn't iterated or evolved as much. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, too, you know, when we talk about when we talk about investors coming in to to, to go activist to try to get a leadership change uh, in motion, I kind of I kind of look at that like selling a stock, and, and what I mean is. It's fine if you've identified some challenges and maybe you want to cut bait with that thing and move on, um, but you got to make sure you get it right on the other side. You know what I mean? To me, I went straight to a sports analogy. It's people who say we got to fire the coach of that team. It's like, okay, um, who do you think should be the coach Who's of that team? Exactly. Because <laughs> who you got filling was, the role? That was one of the things I thought when I was reading through this story. I was like, okay, do they have somebody in mind? And if they do, who is it? And let's. Evaluate the relative merits of that person. Yeah, exactly. Because just because you feel like you've made a good decision on the front end there, and I mean, selling a stock, sometimes that's the right thing to do, and sometimes it turns out to bite you in the rear. Um, but you know, I mean, if you're going to sell a stock and you want to put that money to work in another name, well, you better make sure that you pick a good one because nothing sucks like selling a loser and then investing in another bigger, fatter loser. Well, and, so <laughs> and I'm not calling Dorsey a loser either. Right. I'm I'm a big fan of Jack Dorsey. I am okay with him serving the role as the CEO at Square and Twitter because I think he's a good person and I think he's generally done a lot of what he said he wanted to do. Now maybe he needs to bring some more talent in there to help kind of get the innovation engine working at Twitter to to, to appease. Uh, Folks like Elliott Management, but but please don't read into this. I, I still like Jack. Well, and I, I think it would be very difficult to make the case. That, look, we've talked about any number of companies over the years where the CEO 
is an absolute train wreck. <laughs> and they are in a guts to go situation. And those are the situations where it doesn't matter who the next coach is, they're going to be better. You know, the next CEO is going to be better than this person. That's not, I don't think that's the case with Dorsey. No. I, for whatever you think of the stock performance or the business, it's very difficult, I think, to make the case that Dorsey is that kind of train wreck and that anybody would be better than him. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that there is an obvious choice to bring in either. I mean, I think one of the benefits of bringing him back in there as CEO uh, was that it, it, it created this green light environment where, where people felt empowered to try new things. I mean, I, I think that before he came back, there was this vision that, or this view that, that Twitter as it was was sacred and you can't get in there and, and mix things up a little bit. And he came in there and lo and behold, he, he said, hey, let's shake this thing up and see what we can really do with it. Maybe he hasn't shaken things up enough. I mean, again, I don't know that it's materially that different of a platform today than it was five years ago. I think it's more robust, it's more enjoyable, but that, you know, it's also got its problems and, and, and they clearly are working on that. But I mean, I do think anytime you have an, an individual serving as CEO of two different companies, uh, they are going to be held more so under the microscope, and, and that's deserved. I think that makes sense. I don't know that I would be targeting Jack necessarily at Twitter because I feel like maybe Twitter's limitations are, are far beyond what what maybe any CEO could really do. I mean, I think the nature of the platform, it's it's a it's a more difficult social platform to monetize given its free-flowing and quick nature. You have to acknowledge that. The Wall Street Journal has an exclusive story today about American Express and it's really set against the backdrop of 2016 when Costco and American Express split ways. Um, for anyone who shopped at Costco, they know that American Express was the the Costco card of choice. That ended in 2016, and in the wake of that, the Journal lays out the facts that some members of American Express's sales staff misled small business owners to increase the number of card signups that they were getting, and there are a few threads I want to pull here. The first is. <laughs> I think at this point, we don't know if this is a few bad apples or the tip of the iceberg. Of course, the uh, spokesperson for American Express is, is laying out the numbers like, well, this is a small number of people. And, um, but the, the, I think you and I read this story and our brains went to exactly the same place, which was, boy, this kind of seems like Wells Fargo. <laughs> it always starts small, right? I think, I think the folks at Wells Fargo said, oh, this was just a couple of bad apples and just isolated incident, no big deal. Um, and it just it starts snowballing, and and I I'm not saying that's what is going to happen here. I I am saying I would not be surprised at all to see more to the story, particularly when you look at how far back this goes. I mean, they're they're calling this all the way back to 2015 when Ken Cheneau was leading the company at American Express, and they were you know going through that relationship negotiation with Costco. The first thing that came to my mind was, I mean, that article. Remember, we read a while back that talked about what went down with Costco and American Express when they were trying to come to these negotiations. And the juxtaposition between Costco going to visit American Express and the executives at Amex going to visit the ones at Costco, I mean, it was very much a blue collar versus white collar. They were two very different cultures, and that was certainly on display there. Um, I you know I think I think a lot of incentives uh, in in Charlie Munger to me is is the 
He's 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 the guy, he's the guy when it comes to good good incentives quotes. And so one one that he's been known to say, "Show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome." Having worked in the financial industry before with a, with a bank. And seeing how those incentive structures are are set up, I mean, when it comes to selling and getting people into accounts and cards and whatnot, those incentive structures are still not good. They they encourage this type of behavior, and I think this type of behavior is really uh, it's it's slimy. You know, I mean, when you when you're when you're going into someone's credit record, I mean, that's that's sacred. You don't just run that. You you do that with permission. When you're putting someone into a card, you want to put them in the right product. You know, it's it's not necessarily about needing to hit this goal as as a salesperson. And it sounds like a lot of these folks were looking to to pump their numbers and maybe make things look a little bit more better for American Express than they did at the time. Um, so I, I don't know if this gets worse before it gets better. I, I would not be surprised at all to see a few more skeletons come out of the closet here, and, and then you've got to start asking yourself. Leadership is Stephen Square, the the CEO of the company. Is is he the right guy for this job? Because he's been there for a very, very long time. One of the takeaways I had from reading this article um, was just how important Costco is to their partners. Yeah. For mm-hmm. and and we've heard the stories before. We've talked to Jim Senegal when he was running Costco. Um, we've you referenced the Bloomberg story um, from a few years back. Um, yeah, if you want to do business with Costco, uh, Costco is probably going to have a, a greater amount of setting the terms of the deal, but it's probably going to be worth it for you as a business. And I think that that's that's one of the big ripple effects here is that this behavior that was unleashed by even if it's just a small percentage of the sales force at American Express. Um, it is a direct result of they lose the business at Costco and the ripple effect of that business and just how important. I mean, we think of it in terms of everyday people just doing their family shopping at Costco. One of the things this story in the journal brings to light is the way small business owners work with Costco and use it and the amount of spending that they do and just how important that is for Costco and all of their partners. So, um, it's a, it's a, and I want to give a shout out to the, um, uh, to the journalist Anna Maria uh, Andriatis uh, at the Journal. This is a really uh, well-researched, in-depth story. Yeah, I, I did enjoy reading it. I mean, I, it's. I mean, I you know don't enjoy reading about these types of things happening, but it was a very well-written piece that that uh, certainly digs into what what could be a big deal. I mean, American Express. I mean, you look back to the financial crisis and how it how it dealt with that afterwards. I mean, American Express has been an okay investment over the last 5 years. It's it's not knocking the cover off the ball, but it's it's hanging in there versus the market and that's okay. Um but but when you when you look at how much the financial uh, services space has changed over the course of just the last five years. I mean, remember we we talked a lot about American Express early on in the context of companies like Visa and Mastercard, and you know why would American Express be able to compete with the likes of Visa and Mastercard when Visa and Mastercard are able to uh, beat them on on price and have bigger networks and offer better rewards programs? And so American Express had to answer that, right? And they answered it by you know making other negotiations with reward partners. Coming up with new offerings to be able to bring uh, you know, more consumers into their universe, and, and that that 
took a little bit away from their brand cachet, uh, but I think they managed it very well and, and kept that brand intact. Uh, you look to today and, and the importance of the business customer. I mean, that's essentially. 30% of American Express's business is these business clients. And in, in a day and age now where you've got companies like Square and PayPal coming up with their own capital programs to help out small business partners, uh, I, I mean, Shopify changing the landscape for small business uh, partners everywhere. I mean, it is just a different world today. And so American Express has to become more competitive. It, this is definitely something that's going to set them back. I mean, any kind of reputational risk in this space here, you got to figure out a way to manage through it. And while Wells Fargo, I would say, for better or worse, too big to fail, I'm not, I'm not envisioning a world where American Express goes away. But but you know we we said it was kind of a meh investment over the last five years. I, I think you could be looking at a situation where it's a meh investment going forward for a number of years as well. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Mark Stenson, who writes, huge fan of the show. Being that the market is in a downturn and there are lots of opportunities presenting themselves, what is your what is your opinion on getting a personal loan to help invest in these better prices as an added bonus on top of my cash that I already have on the sideline? With your help, I have a healthy return on most of my stock picks, and I think I might get a pretty decent ROI. Thanks for helping me invest for my future and helping me keep calm during these trying times. P.S. Teladoc has been killing it. Uh, thank you, Mark, uh, for the kind words. Teladoc has listening. been killing it, Mark. They have been killing it. Um, what do you think of that? I, I read his question and I thought, boy, it never occurred to me to try and take out a personal loan to fund the cash reserves in my investing account. And when I thought about it a little bit more, I thought, I don't think I want to do that. Oh, I've thought about it. That's just me. (laughs) But you've thought about it. I've thought about it too. Yeah. And I mean, in today's today's environment, I mean, you get money for almost nothing. And and so it becomes far more tempting these days. And I mean, you just think about the logic of it. I mean, if you borrow money at X percent, say if you borrow money at two or three or four percent, you essentially just need that's what you're paying for that money. You need to outperform what you're paying for it. And with rates this low, I mean, that hurdle becomes lower, it becomes more achievable. At least you could see it and think, man, maybe I could do that. Um, I'm going to go. Go to a a key phrase here in Mark's email because it was it was a great one. I appreciate you writing it, Mark. And when you said again, great show, and thanks for helping me invest for my future and helping me keep calm during these trying times. I I would not borrow money to invest into the stock market, and and I think that if you did, then you would not be able to keep calm during these trying times. I think one of the reasons why you don't do something like that. And it's why we don't, you know, we recommend that that you don't put money in the market that you know you're going to need within the next three to five years, is because it it starts putting you in a situation where you don't necessarily have as much control, and you can fall into a situation where maybe you become a desperate seller. Now, if you borrow money from a bank, whether it's a home loan or a personal loan or whatever, you're not necessarily on a margin situation like if you were to borrow money from your broker to short stocks or to buy stocks on margin. Um, but at the end of the day, the more you lever yourself, the more indebted you become to invest money into the stock market, the more control you lose over the matter. And what we're seeing today, uh, in the stock market up another 600 points or so as, as, we, as we tape here, 
I mean, what's going on right now just doesn't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's it's very it's very volatile. There it, there doesn't seem to be really any any rhyme or reason, which I think makes it even more difficult to try to invest in times like these. Uh, so I, I personally will not borrow money to buy stocks. I don't I don't need to. But I mean, I, I also think it just goes back to the importance of getting started young, so that when you're 30 or 40, you're not necessarily looking at trying to get started and make up for lost time. And, and I don't think that a, a good solution to make up for lost time would be to borrow money either. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.